Nowhere else in Australia has there been a crime like this. Nowhere else in the world has there been a crime like this. A three-year-old boy abducted from its grandmother's house in a street that's unbelievably quiet in a tiny town. Isolated. Out the back of nowhere. And, there have, isn't. and have no evidence. There isn't. Nothing. No, no, nothing. There isn't. some days harder than others yeah birthdays you know um, special events um, you see something and it reminds you of him mm. you come across a photo um, I mean there's not a day you know, honestly there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about it mm. not a day yep it's just um, a huge hole Piece by piece, William's foster parents, Jane and Peter, were trying to put their shattered lives back together. In this episode, we'll find out why their pain became even more unbearable as they started to face a barrage of online abuse and threats. We'll also explain why Jane and Peter were forced to fight for an unprecedented reward for any information about William's case, hoping that may spark some new leads. They asked, what price do you put on a child's life. We'll also look at the key persons of interest who have never been ruled out and the new man Chief Inspector Gary Jubelin was focusing on. Police are also investigating reported sightings of William and working through hundreds of tip-offs from the public. I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? Leah, Jane and Peter have lost their little son, but I think what is incredibly difficult for them or for any parent is the part of not knowing, having no idea whether someone took him, if he's alive or if something else has happened to him. How did Jane and Peter cope with that? This is a question I get asked quite a lot um, as to how they've handled this tragedy that has happened to them. Um, And how they've managed to keep it together and get through it as a family. As you can imagine, this would be such a huge strain on on people, on their relationship, on their friendships, and I spoke to them about that. And you guys have managed to get through this together as a family. Mm. It's such a hard thing for two, in your case, three people to go through. How how have you managed to, to do that? I think there's a three of us going through it. Yeah. But there's also some other people that are going through it. And I'm really mindful that... um, It's not just us. It's not just us. It's his mum and his dad. It's it's the people that are connected to them as well. So I'm really... There's a bigger amount of of people going through this. And it's it's not just the immediate. There's... um, there's like there's like layers, yeah. You know, and everyone has their the the their own impact, um, how it's impacted them, and how and again how they they deal with it, and how they handle it. What prepares you for this? There's nothing that can prepare you for this at all. You know, everyone knows that eventually someone's going to maybe when they're older you're going to die or something like. You know, we know that. But in this sort of situation, who would yeah. you know? You think about the the, the chances of this, you know, 
you look at all all of the details, what's the chance of that happening? Yeah, you know, billions to one, billions. Yeah. 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 There's no what. There's no manual. And that one of the things that I've learned about myself from this has been there is no choice to not not get up. You give up. You put one foot in front of the other. And you put the other foot in front of the other one and you just keep moving. And it starts off with a tiny little shuffle and then eventually you're just walking. Um, so for me, there never is any other choice other than you just get up. And do you find that you reach other strengths a lot? You know, if one of you's having a particularly bad day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you have to. What's the alternative? Yeah. But it's, you know, I think it, I think it certainly tests mm. any relationship. Yeah. And also any friendship. Yeah. And the support that you give and get from others. Yeah. Mm. Um, we're not perfect. No. I don't think there is anyone that is. And I, I keep hearing people say, yeah, I don't know how you do it. How do you deal with it? I mean, it's just, how does anyone do it? With anything, you've got to get up and you've got to you got to go at it again. That's the only way you win, you know. I mean, that's that's the, the other, only way we win. And also in finding out yeah. what happened to William, it, yeah. you just keep going. That's that's the fight. That's the battle. As Jane and Peter were struggling with still no answers, what was happening with the investigation, Leah? The investigation was fairly quiet for quite a few months after the, the first anniversary. Uh, we can assume they were doing a lot behind the scenes and, and that included an extensive investigation into all avenues, including whether or not any of the family were involved. Uh, and it was around the two-year anniversary that Gary Jubilin actually came out publicly and, and ruled out Jane and Peter. Look, quite often there's rumour and speculation on high-profile high cases and it, it's a little bit vindictive at, at this point in time where, where blame is uh, attributed to the family. I can say, yes, we have ruled the, the family out. I've personally interviewed the family and I, I'm saying they've had nothing to do with it. It's at this time that Jane and Peter then started to lobby for an increase in a reward for any information about William's disappearance and it was unprecedented in New South Wales the amount they were able to get. Yeah, so a reward is quite common in a criminal case, particularly homicide or missing persons case, where they do need to generate some new leads um, to offer a reward for people to come forward with information. And significantly in this case, they offered it for not only for information about what happened to William, but for the return of William in whatever capacity that means. And so Jane and Peter have told me that when the reward was first mentioned, the amount that was first floated was $50,000, which to them seemed very minimal. They told them that that was not acceptable and that it needed to be more. And that's when they started pushing really hard for a $1 million reward, including lobbying state politicians, um, which would make it the first time that it ever happened in New South Wales. Leah, why were Jane and Peter so adamant about fighting for that $1 million reward? They felt that $1 million was a life-changing amount of money and police agreed. And I think we can assume that it was targeted at specific people who may have known something. The $1 million reward, never ever before done in New South Wales, that was directly as a result of you saying... $50,000 $50,000 is not enough for William. Well, yeah, that was the initial value that they put on it and I didn't think that was um, adequate. 
So I said, let's put a million on it. And that took quite a lot yeah. to get there. Yeah. So insist in, it was 250 and then you just said, no, no. straight up, no. It's mm. a million. That's it. It's a million. We had some conversations with Troy Grant. We had we wrote a letter to Andrew Scipioni, um, Gary, all this lobbying going on, we got to a million dollars, which is unheard of. So I'm very proud of you for doing that because I think it's given other victims, families, victims, opportunities to say my, my child, my husband, my wife, my daughter, my son, is worth more Absolutely. than $50,000. And it's been the catalyst now for quite a few more $1 million rewards. Yeah. And so it should be. And so it should be. It's, it's, it, should, it should probably be worth it it should should be more. more now. It should be more. I mean, what's, the, what's, the, what's the value of a child? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the value of anyone, right? But what's the, you know, when you're talking about this case, what's the value of a three-year-old child? Mm-hmm. You can't put a price on that. You can't put a price on that at all. No. I was hoping that someone would see that as an opportunity to um, to do something, to, to action something. You know, even if it's the minute piece of information that allows us to get one step further or closer um, to an outcome or at least, you know, that's the catalyst, that domino effect, that then we get to an, out, uh, um, an outcome of the case. So did the lobbying work? Yeah, they lobbied Parliament um, personally um, themselves. They they went to Parliament and they and they spoke directly to these MPs. Um, and as a result, the police minister said he would do whatever needed to be done for them. So on that two year anniversary of William's disappearance, they announced the first one million dollar reward in New South Wales. And significantly since then, it's actually been the catalyst for a lot of other one million dollar rewards for missing people. So not only was it you know, important for them, but it has made a real difference to other cases. Uh, so that reward was announced um, on the two-year anniversary of William's disappearance at a press conference. And uh, I can announce to you that uh, as of today, there will be a $1 million reward for the, uh, the uh, safe return. In fact, the return of this little boy. Um, it is a unique an announcement here in New South Wales. We've never had a $1 million reward ever before. If you've got information in regards to uh, William's disappearance and you've got concerns that you could be potentially complicit in the offence by concealing the offence, that that, uh, offence will be negated the moment you come to police. I can say, I can guarantee personally that we can protect your identity, we can protect your safety. And it's very important that I dispel the uh, perception or possible perception that the announcement of the reward is the situation that we've run out of uh, lines of inquiry. This is a very proactive investigation. We've got numerous lines of inquiry and we see the reward as another tool that we can use to find out what's happened to William. To give you an understanding of the magnitude of the investigation, it is the state's largest investigation. We've had over 2,800 reports to Crime Stoppers alone from members of the public providing information. We have a further 196 reports directly to the strike force. We've had 1,078 sightings of William Tyrrell. All this information has been followed up, but what we would be interested in, if anyone's got concerns about the circumstances in which a child has come into a family's uh, family, or the way people react, and this is probably a sign for people to look at, the way people react when we talk about William Tyrrell. 
It's a very public case. Some people might overreact. Some people might uh, just uh, overreact in the terms of they don't want to speak about it. So anything that you've got suspicion, provide it to us and we will follow it up. Did that $1 million award actually then spark new leads for police? How did it help the investigation? It certainly raised the profile once again. It put it back in people's um, minds and, you know, raised more awareness of it being out there. I suspect, based on what I know about the investigation, that the reward was perhaps being targeted at certain people that they thought might have information. Um, and I think listening to Gary Jubilant's press conference there, you can you can tell that he's speaking directly to people who might know something. Unfortunately, the reward has not yet been claimed, but it does still stand. How well informed were William's families about the ongoing police investigation? Because I'm sure every day they wanted to know, is there any new lead? What's going on? So I can't speak for William's birth family as to how informed they were. We have approached them, as I've said before, to be involved in this podcast and they have not responded. But in terms of Jane and Peter, they've told me they felt very informed by Gary. They said Gary Jubilant was keeping them as informed as he possibly could about what was going on without jeopardising the investigation. They had his phone number and they had access to him whenever they wanted. So they felt they knew him very well and that not only made them um, have a lot of trust in him, but it also assured them that he was doing everything he could to find William. And I think part of what's helped us is... um We've had someone, Gary, who has kept it going. So he shared our sheer bloody-mindedness on never giving up. And I think to have that matched has helped because we have felt that at least we are not in this alone in looking for him. And he has been looking for William Mm. and he's done and he's pushed and he's tested and I'm sure people have got incredibly frustrated and angry with him along the way but we have had someone who has been as passionate as focused Mm. and as dogged in finding out what happened to William Mm. we've done everything we possibly can you know because we're not police you know they can do things that, you know, general public citizens can't. But we have done everything we possibly could to find him. And I, that's helped. And yeah. how has it felt having him on the case for you guys? We trusted. We trusted police. We trusted him. He, he was the face of the police. He's, he, it gave us comfort. You know, yeah. Diligent, determined, you know, um, integrity, yeah. trust, you know, that was Gary Jubal in, in, a, in a couple of descriptive words. But he, but he also is prepared to challenge. He just doesn't follow the status quo. If, if he thinks that there is something that's not right, he'll look at it, he'll take a very logical, structured, well-thought-out view on it, mm-hmm. and if he believes it needs to go to a certain direction, he's not afraid to put his convictions behind it and stand by them. And we need that because nowhere else in Australia has there been a crime like this. Mm. Nowhere else in the world has there been a crime like this. A three-year-old boy abducted from its grandmother's house in a street that's unbelievably quiet in a tiny town. Isolated. Out the back of nowhere. 
and have no evidence. There isn't. Nothing. No, no, nothing. There isn't. And also a child in, in care. There isn't. There isn't. And so Gary went, okay, what do we do? How do we, how do we make this mm. work? Where do we go? Mm. And he was able to get through, I think, things that not a lot of police could have done as leading a case like but this. I think, he challenged. But I think he, he, he built a team that he also challenged yeah. and also the team challenged him. Yeah. So, because this is, you know, this is uncharted territory, right? You can't just approach this from, you know, standard one hundred and one approach. Mm. You can't. This is like. And and he consulted experts. He was not afraid to yeah, he say. International he was experts. not afraid to go out and say, "Come on and tell me what I'm missing." He consulted experts. Yeah. You know. They came out. They provided him with advice. They provided him with guidance, and he's he. He's got an he's got an ego because he's he's good at what he does, mm. but his ego doesn't get in the way of solving the crime and moving it forward. And that's what we needed. We need someone who is prepared to put themselves on the line for William. It's not about us. It's about women. It's not about us. It's about William, and it's about finding out what happened to him and bringing him home. Yeah. Leah, let's talk in more detail now about the key persons of interest because what makes this case very different to many other cases in the country and around the world is there was no specific evidence found that points to anyone. So as is the case in a lot of other homicide and missing person cases, um, there is often someone who is the obvious suspect and that is not the case here. There is no obvious suspect here, at least not that we're aware of. There are dozens and dozens and at one point even hundreds of persons of interest in this case who have been looked into. That has that number has reduced recently, um, but there are still a lot of people who have never been able to be ruled out in this case, but there's no one that's actually um, become an obvious suspect who is the person who they think has definitely done this. And that's what is so baffling about it and so confusing. And so there are dozens of persons of interest that are still in the picture that have never been ruled out. Obviously, they looked at all the known sex offenders in the area. That's an, an, a line of inquiry that they have always followed and thoroughly checking all of those out. There is a particular man who is a pedophile who lived a short distance from William's foster grandmother's house, and that made him a person of interest. However, as with a lot of the others, there is no evidence to suggest that he was involved in this abduction. He is simply a suspicious person because he is a pedophile who lived nearby, but they've never been able to conclusively rule him out. And so he is still a person of interest and a focus of the investigation. There's also Tony Jones, who we've mentioned in a previous episode, who was a focus of this investigation. Gary Dribble and the task force seized his car. He is a convicted a convicted sex offender who was living in the, the region at the time and was involved in that group that was then um, found to uh, have several members, including himself and another man who were convicted of child sex offences. Um, he is set to testify at the upcoming inquest as well. Um, another person who is set to testify at the inquest is Bill Spedding, the washing machine repairman who we've spoken about extensively. He appeared at the first hearing um, via a lawyer. 
Um, he personally didn't appear, but his lawyer represented him at the inquest. Um, so he will he is set to testify at the upcoming inquest as well as a person of interest. And then there is another person that Gary Jubelin starts to concentrate on. So we don't know how long Gary was focusing on this particular person, um, but what we do know is that publicly um, he became significant to the case in December last year when it was the preliminary hearing for the inquest into William's disappearance. And at that hearing, um, Paul Savage appeared via phone at the inquest and said that he was going to arrange a lawyer. And this was alongside a lawyer for Bill Spedding, um, who was also represented at that hearing, um, which then sparked the interest of all the media who wondered why this man needed to get a lawyer for the inquest. So you might recall I mentioned Paul Savage briefly in in another episode in regards to the initial search for William. A neighbour knocked on his door shortly after William disappeared and asked if he had seen a little boy, which he said he hadn't but would help look for him. Savage and his wife, who unfortunately has since passed away, lived directly across the road from William's foster grandmother's house. And his wife was at bingo at that, that morning when William disappeared, so Savage was home alone in his house. He has told police that he started searching for William in the bush and got a bit lost for about two hours before finding his way out and and heading home. He then proceeded to assist in that search over the coming days along with all of the other locals. So after his name emerged at the inquest, I tried to talk to him as he visited his local legal aid office in Port Macquarie. Um, what What are you going to be saying at the inquest? I'll find out in time, won't I? Do you know why they want you to appear? No. Do you know anything about what happened to William? No. Mr Savage says he was wandering in the bush for about two hours on the day that William disappeared, but he vehemently denies any wrongdoing. As you can hear there, he denies any knowledge at all of what happened to William and we can't speculate at this stage about why he was a focus of the investigation or why he's being compelled to testify at the upcoming inquest because we can't preempt any of his testimony, but we certainly will be able to speak more about him in a later episode. Interestingly, though, his brother-in-law, so his wife's brother, Gregory Newton, was called to testify at the hearing back in March, and he told the court that he was visiting Paul and his wife that day, and he arrived on Benarine Drive to find that a little boy had disappeared and Paul was helping to search for him. And he told the court that Paul seemed very worried about the little boy, And Mr Newton then stayed there at the house that night before leaving the next day. One of our other journalists here at 10 News First, Ali Donaldson, also approached Paul Savage again recently for an interview on what would have been William's eighth birthday in June, and this is what he said. It's William's eighth birthday today. Yeah, I know, yeah. It'd be good if he was home with his parents. Yeah, I'm hoping that he's around somewhere. That's all we can do is hope for it. Jane, Lindsay and William's foster grandmother were the last people to see William before he disappeared. Who do they believe took William? They can't comment on specific persons of interest and whether or not they think a specific person has done this. But what they are adamant about is that someone took William that day. What do you think has happened to William? Um, I, th- I think it's <clears throat> just been it's almost like a sliding doors. It's um, an opportune time 
crossing paths, all those elements lining up, and just a, an unfortunate incident where William was at the centre of it. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't be solved, you know. But, um, yeah, complete lining up of just some incredible time frames. And uh, I think he's been abducted. He's not lost. I don't think he ever was. Do you think there's a chance he's still alive? You know, you hear stories about, you know, in America where <clears throat> people have been abducted and held in rooms and things like that for many, many years. Um, you have that little thing in the back of your head thinking that, that you hope that might be the case. Um, I, I'm, I doubt it. Um, the logical yeah. part of your brain says most likely not. Yeah, chances of chances of these. But sorts the of hope things. and the emotional part and the desire to see him again overrides that. Yeah. We can never lose hope. Still no sign of William, and then the investigation was dramatically expanded one of the biggest homicide investigations in Australian history. This was and is one of the biggest homicide investigations, particularly in New South Wales. They had so much information to go through. They had dozens of persons of interest to look at. Some were more thoroughly investigated than others. Some considered more high risk than others. And a lot of them never conclusively ruled out. They were dealing with thousands of tips. This was a high-profile case, as I've mentioned. So there were thousands of calls to Crime Stoppers because of its high-profile and that included hundreds of false sightings of William. Some were so promising, though, that detectives actually thought that they had possibly found him. For example, the year after he disappeared, two passengers and a crew member on a flight from Australia to New Zealand all became convinced independently of each other that a boy on the plane was William Tyrrell. And they were all so sure of it and it seemed so promising that detectives actually travelled there to meet the plane on the tarmac as the passengers disembarked that plane to see if it was William. Um, obviously, they established that it wasn't him. It was just a child who looked a lot like him. Another example of this was a boy in Queensland who was spotted um, travelling with an, an older woman and whoever saw him took a photo of the boy and actually sent it to Gary and the task force. And they saw this photo and he looked so similar to William that detectives were actually preparing to travel there as well to investigate this, um, but managed to establish that, again, it wasn't him. It was just another boy who looked almost identical to him. So this is an example of just how many things were going on, how many tips were going on, and, and a lot of it was very promising. So during the investigation when there were these reported sightings, were Jane and Peter kept across this? Because that would have been incredibly frustrating. You would have had amazing hope thinking, my gosh, they've found William, and then those hopes are dashed. Yeah, as I said before, that Gary was keeping them as informed as possible, so they were aware of um, any particular sightings that were promising. Uh, and obviously that does give you a level of false hope. You can't help but 
feel that way. But I think Gary went out of his way to make sure they were realistic about that and, and as soon as they were ruled out, they were obviously informed. But unfortunately with high-profile cases like this, there are hundreds of calls and reports um, and a lot of them are not helpful. Um, you know, in this case there have been people just calling just to report seeing a boy in a Spider-Man suit at a local shopping centre who doesn't look anything like William or isn't even the right age. So you've got to imagine that there were a lot, there's a lot of noise surrounding um, this case. And police have the very difficult job of trying to work through those because they have to check out every reported sighting because there is always the chance that it could be William. In regards to lots of different theories about what may have happened to William, there was even a theory recently from a clairvoyant saying that William was actually alive and well. William, as we know, would be eight now, eight years of age that he was actually alive and well living in WA. Yeah, there's been a lot of these um, sorts of theories in this case, as there are with cases like this, particularly high-profile ones. There there have been a lot of reports from psychics and clairvoyants and a lot of these different theories coming out. But it is important to stress that Gary Jubelin, as the lead investigator, um, did not take any of them into account. He's previously spoken about these kinds of theories at a news conference, um, urging them not to waste his time with these theories. But I just stress with the information, we're not interested, and, and it has got such a profile, and the public have been so cooperative in the way that they've provided information. But look, don't waste our time with clairvoyance or dreams. We want to focus on tangible evidence. And let's be, use common sense with the evidence that's provided. Initially, there were restrictions on William on what journalists in the media could report and could not report because of his foster care situation. But then that changed as a result of a Supreme Court decision. There was a group of people who took issue with the fact that we were not able to publicly say that he was in the care of the department at the time he went missing and that he was a foster child. So this group of people who didn't actually know William, uh, they just took it upon themselves to to challenge this um, as um, what they call advocates. They took this to the Supreme Court to have the restrictions overturned for this case specifically. They argued that it was in the public interest for his foster status to be made public. Uh, The department and the police actually argued against this application in the Supreme Court, saying it would be detrimental to the investigation, Uh, but the judge decided it was in the public interest and so those restrictions were lifted, which meant that the media could now report William's history, the fact that he was removed from his birth family and why, And that led to a lot more media coverage of his birth family and the issues surrounding why their children were taken away. It also unfortunately led to a lot of backlash for the foster family about the fact that he was in their care when he disappeared. And the foster parents have spoken about this. It's a crime that's been committed. The crime was committed by a person who took William. There have been people that have been paying and paying, hearts broken, for years. Mm. And it's not just us, it's William's family. Mm. They've had to suffer the most awful of indignities of having their history pushed across international media. I mean, that's disgusting. Mm. And that was at the hands of one person who's a part of this core group who have absolutely harassed us. Mm. And it's disgusting. And it's disgraceful. And it shouldn't have been allowed to happen. Yeah. It shouldn't have been allowed to happen. It's not public interest to know the back end 
are the circumstances that brought William into care. It's nobody's business no. mm. and it shouldn't have been exposed. Yeah. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. Putting aside what they've done and said about us yeah. and, the, and the sort of, um, oh, I can't even repeat what they've been doing, the fact that that happened I just think is absolutely shameful. Yeah. What does it say as a society about us that we think it's okay to do that? It's not okay. Not only were William's birth parents and foster parents dealing with losing William and having no idea what had happened to him, but Jane and Peter then experienced this vile online abuse. Yeah, despite the lead detective, Gary Jubelin, stating publicly several times that they were not responsible for his disappearance and, in fact, that they provided a loving home for him and his sister, they have been targeted viciously online um, by people who, for some reason, believe that they are somehow to blame for his disappearance or that they believe that they, for some reason, have something to answer for. Um, so they have been posting extremely defamatory accusations. There have been threats. Um, they've even been breaking the law by posting their identities online, which, as we know, is against um federal laws preventing foster parents from being identified. Um, so that has certainly taken a toll on them in, in addition to the unimaginable trauma that they and the birth family have already been suffering. Um, but despite all of it, they say there's no point in trying to convince these people that they've done nothing wrong and that they don't deserve it. So this is what they say about it. Oh, look, it'll never be enough. It'll mm. never be enough for that. It It will be... It will be what it is. People will continue to say vile, disgraceful things about us. People will continue to continue to hurl, you know, dispersions on our character and all sorts of stuff because some people just cannot understand how two strangers can love a child in the way in which we have. Why do you still think even to this day that people are suspicious of Jane and Peter? As I've said before, I think the fact that they remain anonymous means that there will always be suspicion because people can't see their faces and they can't judge for themselves whether they think that they um, are responsible or suspicious or, or good or bad people. Um, and despite experts like Gary Jubilant coming out and saying it, people seem to really need to decide for themselves and I think that that anonymity certainly does lead to suspicion. And I also think that um, a lot of people are just naturally suspicious and those people probably believe that given that um, this case is so mysterious, that Jane and Peter were the closest to him when he went missing, that there must, must not be another explanation. And in regards to knowing how damaging keeping their identity secret was to the investigation and to raising people's suspicions... Why did authorities not overturn those judgments? The laws in place to protect foster parents are very, very clear and very strict and long-standing and it would have to be a very severe case for them to overturn that. And as I've said before, Jane and Peter do believe there are a lot of benefits to remaining anonymous, particularly for Lindsay. It allows her to live her life out of the public eye. And that is what is most important to them now is, is Lindsay living as normal life as she possibly can. Many persons of interest, the investigation is continuing, but still no major breakthroughs for police at this stage. And it's the three-year anniversary and police then hold a news conference. 
Gary Jubelin gave a press conference on, on the three-year anniversary and he noted during that press conference that it was actually unusual to update the public on an ongoing investigation unless it was necessary to help that investigation. But as I've said, this case is so high profile that he felt it was necessary to assure people that they were still working on it. Um, and in that press conference he called for people to come forward if they knew anything. He also reiterated that William's foster family had been cleared of any involvement, as we've previously mentioned, and significantly he also confirmed publicly that the birth family had also been ruled out. And this is some of what he said. We're not going to give up. We're going to keep fighting until we find out what's happened to William. And I have ruled out the foster care parents and have ruled out the biological parents as being involved in this investigation. Of someone that has concerns about someone they know, someone within their family, the way they react when William Tyrrell's name is mentioned. I want that person to feel the pressure. I want that person to feel that everyone's looking at them. In June 2018, it seemed to come out of nowhere that police then conducted this extensive search of bushland. And there was a lot of speculation at the time that it was going to lead to a major development. This was a major news story at the time because we hadn't heard much about the investigation at all for quite a few months and uh, there'd been no major breakthroughs, as you mentioned, and it was, you know, speculated that um, perhaps this was it, perhaps they'd got a tip and perhaps they were about to find something. As we know now, um, Gary Jubelin was preparing to present a brief of evidence to the coroner for an inquest about this case and that's a way of testing the evidence that they've gathered if they don't think they have enough to charge anyone, which, as we know now, they didn't at the time and they still don't. As part of that, um, they did this search, which is what he called a forensic search uh, of the surrounding area around Benaroon Drive and another local area in Kendall. It took them about three weeks, which is a significant amount of time for a search, um, and it involved dozens of police officers. It also included searching an area down Batar Creek Road, which, as you might remember, was the road that intersected with Benaroon Drive. It was about four kilometres from Benaroon Drive where William disappeared. And he wouldn't say why they searched there except to say that they were acting on information. So that search site was also visited by the state coroner, which is obviously another suggestion that this was designed to um, prove to the coroner once and for all that he hadn't, hadn't wandered off and to prepare a brief of evidence for her. Gary gave several press conferences at the site during that search and what we didn't know at the time was that it would be the last time he would hold a press conference as head of this investigation. The purpose of this is so if we present evidence to a court whether that be the coroner's court or the criminal court, that that evidence that we can show beyond reasonable doubt that William's disappearance was a result of human intervention and not through misadventure. That's what we're focusing on. I'd also like to take this opportunity to uh, reiterate the fact that we're not giving up on this investigation. I don't want this interpreted that the investigation is coming to an end. We're committed to finding out what's happened to William. We're very mindful it's over three and a half years since William disappeared and we haven't solved this matter. We're going to continue on until we do sol solve this matter. We've always considered the possibility of it going to an inquest and we're keeping our minds open to that. But I want to also stress that we've got numerous lines of inquiries, including persons of interest, that we're going to fully exhaust before the matter goes to the coroner. So um, at this point in time, is there any questions? Are you talking... 
Look, we have grave, grave fears and it's been a very long time. But uh, as I've said to the family, and I can't be any more honest than uh, what I say to the family in a situation like this, until we know conclusively that William is not alive, we'll treat with the possibility that he still is alive. But obviously we have grave concerns. So initially there was speculation that that search was going to lead, as we mentioned earlier, to a major development. But was that about just ticking a box saying that we've ruled out that he did wander off into the bush? As we know now, uh, a forensic search, as he described it, um, it was more about um, covering off that avenue of inquiry for the coroner so they can they can prove something to the coroner when it goes to an inquest. And they've conducted a, a thorough search that suggests that there was no evidence around the area where William disappeared, perhaps suggesting that he f- conclusively did not wander off. Why didn't police search that area extensively as soon as William disappeared? In terms of the area surrounding Benaroon Drive, the initial search was, as we know, to locate a missing boy who had wandered off. Uh, and that involved a lot of volunteer searches, SES personnel and that kind of thing. So... I can only assume that that's a very different search to the one that they conducted recently, which was a forensic search with trained police officers who know exactly how to comb the area, what to look for and and that kind of thing. The area that was about four kilometres away, they've never said exactly why they searched that area, only that they were acting on information um, that they received. But I suspect that that will become evident at the upcoming inquest. So the inquest is being held in two parts, the first part being held earlier this year, in 2019, around March, and the second part of the inquest is set to start very shortly. That's right. So in March, it was set down for a week, um, which included evidence um, and testimony from both sides of William's family, from his foster parents and from his birth parents, as well as a lot of testimony around that initial search that we've already spoken in detail about, the initial ground search involving SES, local police and volunteers. So a lot of the testimony was around that search and around his um, background and, and family life. So why do they have to have a second part of the inquest? Why couldn't they hold the inquest altogether in March? It's not clear why they've decided to do it that way. Um, I suspect there is some sort of strategy involved that meant that they wanted to have quite a significant break between the first hearing and the second hearing. So the second lot of hearings in August will actually run for an entire month, the entire month of August, and that will involve interviewing and speaking to um all the persons of interest and laying out all the evidence against any persons of interest that police have gathered. When you were told that it was going to go to an inquest, that the coroner was going to be investigating it, did you still have faith that Gary was going to do everything he could to solve this? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So we Never questioned it. We we worked quite closely with Gary um, and we were aware that the inquest, there was... There were two inquests that were going to happen. The first one was happening and the second one. So we were um, aware of that um, and nervous about it but understand why it needs to happen and, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, but we had complete faith that Gary was going to lead us and the inquest um, and we had complete faith that Gary would be back and he would be doing it and continuing on in leading the um, the inquest. 
So with the coronial inquest, Leah, obviously it depends on what evidence is presented at the inquest, but what's the chance of them having enough evidence to prosecute someone? In these types of cases, they generally go to a coronial inquest when police have exhausted all leads and all lines of inquiry uh, and perhaps even have strong persons of interest in mind but just don't have enough evidence to prosecute them in a criminal court. And the way to then test the evidence that they've got is to go to a coronial inquest. As I've said before, though, Gary Jubelin has actually previously used coronial inquests as tools to further his investigation, which has actually led to breakthroughs. In one of his previous cases, um, a missing man by the name of Matt Levison, the coronial inquest actually led to discovering his body because he was able to use the coronial inquest as leverage against the person of interest. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the case was going cold to go to a coronial inquest, particularly because it was Detective Chief Inspector Jubilin. But in this case, there weren't any major breakthroughs and so it was time for the coroner to look into it and decide if there was any avenues that needed to be followed or if there was any persons of interest that could be prosecuted. And just weeks out from the second part of the coronial inquest, there is what many would say a sensational and quite shocking development is that the chief investigator in this case, Gary Jubelin, is arrested and is now facing a number of serious charges. So we will detail all the events that led to Gary's recent criminal charges and for the first time, William's foster parents, Jane and Peter, will speak about how this ordeal has played out for them and how it's affected them. They'll make some explosive allegations against the New South Wales Police Force, which is tasked with investigating and finding their little boy and how they've been treated and their fears for the future of this investigation. And I am incredibly angry and I want them to know and I want the public to know we are never, ever giving up on finding out what happened to William and the people who can do that are police and they're doing nothing. Nothing about it. Nothing. It's disgusting. He could be anybody's three-year-old child. Mm. He could have been anybody's. It just happened to be us. It happened to be us. And him. And as you said before, the person who who did this, who took William, is still out there. Yeah. We're letting him go. The police are letting him go. The other question, the thing that runs through my mind is that, does that mean that this person's done it before? Does it mean that this person is likely to do it again? It's all possible. Where's William Tyrrell is produced and presented by Leah Harris in conversation with Natasha Belling. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. The recording and audio work by the 10 team of Mitch Willard, Bevan Tantu and Josh Pollock. Thanks to everyone in the 10 News team for their support and assistance. You can contact the show at whereswilliam at network10.com.au. If you have any information that may assist this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. If you would like to find out more about the Where's William campaign, please visit www.whereswilliam.org.
This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.